1: Welcome to Real Jam Radio, I'm Danny Wu, your host, and so happy to have you with us for this episode. This has been an absolutely massive week in terms of the NBA, so I made an absolutely massive podcast, and it's two guests. The first one is Siret Sohi of Rolling Stone and numerous other outlets, one of my favorite writers. And we talk about how Kevin Durant leaving for the Warriors affects his perception, how it affects his legacy, and we also talk about Russell Westbrook. And then I have on Dan Feldman of NBC to talk More about the off-season as a whole. Winners, losers, specific deals we liked or didn't like. And I'm absolutely thrilled that this episode is sponsored by Blue Apron, one of my absolute favorite products. And you can go to blueapron.com slash realgm to check it out. And if you order through there, you get your first three meals free with free shipping. But first up is Sirat Sohi. Again, one of my favorite writers and thinkers about this sort of topic. First person I reached out to to talk about the big kind of picture with Durant. She and I talked for about 35 minutes about that and a couple other things. I think you'll really enjoy it. Thank you so much for coming on.
2: Thanks for having me. How's it going?
1: It's going well. I mean, it's uh, as you could guess, it's been pretty crazy. And I think really the most interesting place, at least for me to start, and of course there are a lot of angles to this, is just where you think this affects Durant's perception both now and moving forward.
2: You know, I think it's a... Uh... I think we kind of saw this thing happen this, uh, this weekend, where well not this weekend, this week, where it's almost like uh, we put him on a little bit more of a pedestal than he's usually on just to knock him down. Did you get a sense of that a little bit?
1: I did, and I also think that Durant wait, was somebody who was elevated in some ways by the by the same people that were kind of burned by this, and that happens too. So it's kind of like you you don't think about it in that context, but I mean, I, I feel terrible for all the Oklahoma City people, both the fans and you know the media that are all of a sudden now involved in something that is less fascinating and amazing than it was three weeks ago.
2: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, yeah, you really do have to feel for those people. Yeah, just thinking about it though, I think. Uh... There's there's two sides to this where there's this one side that looks at what happened with LeBron a couple of years ago when he went to Miami and there was just way too much backlash and I think people now look back at that as a mistake, well most people do so there's this there's this reflection uh, this reflexive thing where no one on that in that camp really wants to criticize him too much and then on the other side there's this side that really wants to reproduce all the events that happened with LeBron even though I don't think the parallel between the two players is really fair.
1: Yeah, I've drawn the distinction before, and this gets confusing for people, but between the decision, which is like the special that LeBron did, and his choice. I think that the choice that he made to go to Miami was, you know, well, there are people who don't like it for the reasons that are obvious, but I thought the choice was completely justifiable. But I thought the way that the decision was handled, the special, was a huge mistake, and that generated a lot of backlash. That and then the giant Miami party with the not-two, not-three, and all that. And I think that those things haven't been a part of the Durant story at least yet
2: yeah no absolutely not I mean with with the decision and the party after like you're basically you have this national tv special where you tell the whole world that you are leaving Cleveland which is already this pretty downtrodden place and then on the other hand with Kevin Durant you just have like you know two or three paragraphs that are like this is a reason I'm doing this this is what I considered I feel bad but I have to do this. Like, I think that's, that's, from a PR perspective, that's probably the best way you could have possibly done it. So those things are entirely different.
1: And one thing that's really frustrating to me, and this was, of course, more relevant with LeBron because he went to where he was from, but it takes so long so people don't think about this. But generally speaking, players have very little impact in where they start their careers. And for eight to nine years, they have really no choice about where they are. You know, especially if they're a max caliber guy because they're going to get matched. You know, like Andre Drummond, didn't. the only way he could have chosen his destination would have been if he called, signed his qualifying offer and then had a huge financial risk and, and then was a free agent next year. So people devise all of this loyalty that you should have. And the entire reason why, especially if you like Durant or LeBron, you were a high draft pick, the only reason you're there is because they happen to have that pick in that draft.
2: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the draft is probably one of the most anti-freedom concepts in, in American labor. You know, I, th- I think it's interesting the way that people reacted to this free agency specifically just because there's so much player movement and uh, players have never had so much freedom. And obviously, in large part, that's because the players' union rejected the idea of caps moving. And people really seem to be upset about players having the freedom to go and do these things and then you see all these comparisons to Larry Bird and Michael Jordan, and Magic Johnson. Like, you know, aside from the fact that those guys won rings with their teams way early on, didn't really have, didn't have a reason to chase. They didn't have the freedom to go and do it anyway. Like, you know, you can call it loyalty. You can also call it being hamstrung too.
1: And then we're also in major markets. Magic was in LA, yeah. won a title, and I believe his his yeah it was his first or second year. Larry won, and I think it was Magic won his first, Larry won his second. yeah. And then Michael, it was later, but he had a a competent team around him. And, I mean, a lot of that, they were just growing into themselves. And he was already in Chicago. He was in a big market. Like, it was a lot of other stuff that those guys had. And I think the story of LeBron and Durant, and I think this will be true of Anthony Davis in a few years, is guys that got put into imperfect situations that were in many circumstances made worse over the time, you know, like at various points between then and when they were a free agent, and then kind of it taking a long time for for the situation to resolve. Like Anthony Davis, I think is going to be the next one of those because New Orleans has completely screwed up building around him. And like now we don't know, of course, where it's going to be four years from now, but there's a major concern about, you know, how good they're going to be for now, from now until then.
2: Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, it's, and I think maybe this will happen with Davis too, when, he'll likely leave and then i just i just wonder if uh there's a segment of the population that's always going to want to do this song and dance where it's such a bad thing that players leave because i think what happened with kd is like you know you're seeing some of the outrage but yeah i think some of it's real and at the same time i don't want to say that people aren't justified in in being disappointed i was initially i was initially disappointed too like you can you, you can believe in players having freedom and still criticize the choices that they make with it but you hear all this stuff now with what KD did is bad for the game and you know it might trigger another lockout which is you know that's the extreme scenario and just in general like not having parity and stuff and it's really just like the more I think about it it's not Katie's job to ensure that the NBA is a good league that's a job of the owners that's a job of the commissioner in the way that they set up the league and second of all it's not really you know even if well, it's just not really in his interest at all, because well, not at all, but you know, when I was thinking about like I don't know if how much you guys have talked about this on the show, but the distinction between shoe contracts and your contract in the league, I look at what Kevin Durant did, and it's like, yeah, he went from Oklahoma to Golden State, which messes up the parody of the league, but at the same time, as a Nike client, he completely undercut under armor.
1: Yeah, so it, it's, in it's that a sense, point. he
2: did his job. Like, he did exactly what he was supposed to do.
1: Yeah, and, and what I understand it from the competitive balance standpoint, and while I think that having teams that are you know more equal is more exciting for fans in that way, it is also true that in NBA history, super teams of any shade have galvanized fan interest like yep. nothing else. Mm-hmm. Like People talk about competitive balance, but the heater talked about more... Than those, like, even those great Spurs teams or, you know, and and it helps that a lot of the super teams have been in really big markets. I mean, the Lakers and the Celtics and all that kind of stuff. But at the same point, that's just what, that's what draws interest. And the comparison, the thing that I've said before on this is that super teams draw interest from Halloween to Valentine's Day, which is generally a time that a lot of people don't care about the NBA. I mean, people like us do. We care about it year round. And people who listen to this podcast probably do, but in terms of revenue, in terms of saturation in the sports market, having a team like that changes the way the NBA is covered, it changes the way the NBA is perceived.
2: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, if Kevin Durant went back to Oklahoma City, opening night is not nearly as big a deal as it will be now.
1: Yeah, and I think it's every game. Like it, it, We don't know exactly yeah, that's what the, the schedule is going to be, but... Every time the, the Warriors are on TNT, every time they're on ESPN, every time they're on... A- Maybe ABC is going to consider playing, doing games earlier in the season. I think they should. You know, I think that they're, yeah. they're losing out if they don't. And so that, that all ties in with it. And then the other big point to me in terms of how his legacy evolves is a very basic one, but is important. And that is, my expectation is that the Warriors are going to be a very fun team to watch, especially offensively. And I think that changes it too because he's going to a team that even if for the times that they're not beating a team by 30 or whatever, they're still going to be fun to watch.
2: Yeah, it's like they'll be, a, they'll be a great blowout team.
1: I think that affects it because just in terms of the way that... Of course, it doesn't change the perception of him as a ring chaser or any of that kind of stuff, but it it smooths the edges, if you will.
2: Yeah. Oh, and I'm, I'm thinking about it, and uh, I guess this goes back to the sneaker stuff because um, I think... Curry and Durant both seem to be pretty reasonable guys, as and unselfish guys, at least as far as professional athletes go. But at the same time, especially with the whole Under Armour versus Nike thing, which maybe I, I'm beating that drum too much, but you know, I could kind of see it being like, if if things don't go well right away, I think there's a lot more reason for those two to clash than uh, we w- we would originally think, just uh, on their basis as basketball players, because you already know with with Kevin Durant coming to to Golden State, Curry doesn't really get to have this redemptive season that he, I think he would have liked to have. It's That's almost like the true. book has been closed and I don't and like if that doesn't pay off right away, I you know, there could be a lot of resentment there.
1: Yeah, that's a good point. I hadn't really thought of it that way, but yeah, with you would never expect for a player who was the first unanimous MVP to have a redemption season, but that is what it would be, you know, that, that just because the way it ended was definitive in the other direction. And yeah. sure, a lot of that was probably based on injury, but it, it was the way it happened regardless. And Durant fundamentally changes it, and one of the huge challenges for this team is on Steve Kerr, not only in terms of... Who plays what, but in terms of how you distribute it, because there will be times that there are fewer of these four guys, the four all stars, on the floor, and so will he try to accommodate and appease various guys on the way that he manages this team.
2: Yeah, I was actually I've been thinking about what this means for Steve Kerr a lot lately because I think what happened with Steve Kerr this past season is the Warriors have been hyped and more casual fans have gotten the train as people try to, to understand how this team is as good as they are. A lot of the credit that he got the season before, when they won the championship, has really just been diminished. Like he, I always see, like like least either from like casual sports fans or more mainstream media that covers everything, as opposed to just the NBA and isn't paying as much attention. This idea that, oh, like look how lucky Steve Kerr is to coach this team. Anybody could coach this team. Steve Kerr gets to have such a great record. and A lot of that is amplified by Luke Walton coaching the team earlier. And, you know, if you, if you pay attention to how the Warriors have grown, you know that's a really ridiculous statement. Mark, Jack, Mark Jackson used to coach that team. Steve Kerr inherited a 50-win team that won 67 and then 73 and won a championship the year prior. So, you know, we know that's not true. But because of that, uh, that new perception, I think that this era is really just going to make or break Steve Kerr. Either, you know, he won a championship, so he'll never really – like, if this doesn't work out the way that everyone's hoping that it will, or Golden State fans are hoping it will, he'll still go down as at least, like, a Doc Rivers-type figure. Where, like, now we can kind of see some of his flaws, but if this does work, like, we're talking Phil Jackson-type stuff here.
1: Yeah, I mean, the Doc-Popovich duality is also there, which is also funny because Doc almost replaced Popovich on the Spurs bench early in Popovich's career, and the championship does certainly change things. And Popovich is—I mean, I think he's the best best coach of the modern era, if not of all time. I just don't have enough knowledge. But he's imperfect, too. I mean, Popovich Mm -hmm. sat Kawhi for key moments, for key stretches, long stretches of that Game 7 against the Clippers last year which is a completely insane thing to do with your best player who's a high-character guy who just happened to make a defensive mistake. And so things like that, I mean, that that isn't to say that he's a bad coach way. Anyway. It's just that everybody makes mistakes like Kerr did, in my opinion, playing Vergeau in the second half of Game 7, lots of other things. And so you're right, though, that in terms of perception, it's there. But I also think that Kerr is well-suited to this challenge because there are two big parts of it. One is the tactical element which you know we'll see, we'll see how that works out. The second part though is the personality and ego management element of it and I think he's very well positioned to from his life to handle that part well.
2: Yeah, no, absolutely. That's actually why I made the Phil Jackson comparison. Like tactically, yeah, you're right, we'll see what happens, but you know, there's there are certain people that you would think would be well suited to, to this job and it would have been unfortunate if if Golden State had more of a tactician in there because uh you know, I don't think that guy would do as well, but you know, you're know, you absolutely right there.
1: Well, the analog might be part of my issue with David Blatt in Cleveland was that I thought one of the easy resolutions to not fixing their whole structural problem the first year was just putting Kevin Love out there with a the second unit and giving him a ton of touches, and just basically reminding him, oh, see, you can do this, and then you get to play some with LeBron too. So when LeBron is out, Love is in, and basically playing the role he played in Minnesota with a knockoff version of Ricky Rubio, probably Del Vidova, and, and you do it that way just to show him, hey, you can do this, and then eventually either you phase that out or keep that in, depending on how well he does and how well it fits. And I think they're going to have to do something with Durant. My theory right mm-hmm. now, and it could bounce, is that maybe what they do is they kind of keep Curry and Draymond. I think they'll probably keep them together a lot. That's something that Curry's done for a long time. And then maybe play either Clay or Durant separately from that, just to make sure that they get that stretch of being more involved and getting more touches. And both of those guys, you can rationalize it. Maybe even split those sitting times in two and give each one of them more rain, and just basically to, to say, okay, you know, if you guys want this time, you can get it, but you're all closing the game together and you're all starting the game Yeah,
2: together. yeah. I like that. I, I would almost even consider going the other way with, with Curry and Durant and then Draymond and Clay just to have the playmaking balance you out a little bit a- too, Yeah. To your point, though, with Kerr like potentially staggering lineups and stuff, like at least like we know with him, he's not gonna be like d- Billy Donovan taking half a season over half a season to figure out that that's a thing. Like, if one thing that's really uh, gonna help Kerr out is that uh, I think he's gonna be willing to try a lot of things and punt a lot of things really quickly, which is gonna be really important for this team that's trying to figure out how to play together and win a championship in the same year yeah it's perfectly suited to that i think and
1: and their guys are different than miami's where it made sense that they were going to struggle adjusting because a lot of guys had to fundamentally change the way they play and i always said back in november and whenever before that that if durant chose the warriors it was going to be at least with some understanding that he was going to have to change the way he played and that is still true you know that that he knew what he was getting into Mm -hmm. the warriors are the warriors and if he thinks that he's just gonna, you know, play the way that they did at the end of that game six when it was basically just one of the two of Russ and KD just kinda stands around and shoots a jumper, as much as Duran is the best isolation guy in the league, that's not gonna happen. And I think that him being him being on the Warriors actually makes that less likely just because they mm-hmm. have so many guys who can who can do well. But that has to be a part of this and I assume it will be.
2: Well yeah, you know, if you if you read some of the reporting on uh what why like Kevin left in the first place, uh, especially Royce Young's piece on ESPN. There's, I mean, there's definitely a sense that that's exactly what he wants. That's what he wanted out of OKC. So I don't. I think maybe, uh, you know, it might be a problem if uh, he thought that's what he wanted, and as in practice, he realizes maybe he didn't. But you know, it seems like that's a big reason he left in the first place. So I don't really think that will be too big of a problem.
1: Yeah, and they have a long time to figure it out. I, something that has always stuck with me is that even after they won the title in twenty fifteen, even on like on the podium, but just in talking with people as well, the Warriors talked about how much more they needed to yeah. be put on offense mm-hmm. and like how much more they needed to do. And this was a coaching staff that just needed more time. Mm-hmm. And what that means is that you have a lot of ideas. Like I don't think it took that long to incorporate what Mark Jackson wanted to do offensively. Yeah. And so to to be able to do that with this team is really important and that they have these kind of ideas and that they want it, that they want to incorporate different things, it will take time, but the intellectual curiosity is what is so important.
2: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the Warriors are kind of in that sense a definition of a process team in that, you know, victory doesn't necessarily mean that they're done. And I think that's really gonna help them here too, just having that mentality and just staying the same with losses and wins because I think the problem with what happened in Miami and to a lesser extent in Cleveland the year before or before they fired Blatt was they let the fact that they were winning games get in the way of self-improvement a lot and I just I don't see that being a problem with the Warriors.
1: It's interesting. I, I think that there's there's a real possibility of that, and, and and you know just that that they have that motivation, and and also that I think that can paper over if you're winning a lot, just some of if some of those issues do linger a little bit, but mm-hmm. but they can they can survive that. And one of the parts that I think makes this team so interesting, and I think Kerr and the coaching staff will definitely utilize, is that when they play Godala as the fifth guy, whenever that is, I don't think they'll use that lineup. I think they'll use it a fair amount, but not you know a ton in the regular season, is that all five of those guys, now that Clay has developed this, can grab a rebound and push. And so you can think about offense and transition offense completely differently when it doesn't matter who gets the rebound. Yeah. Because the Mm -hmm. example for me is, I love Minnesota, I watch a lot of Mm -hmm. the Wolves, is that really at this point, because Levine hasn't figured all of this out, they have one guy, so when when they when somebody grabs a rebound, whether it's Towns or Jen, whoever, they pass the ball to Rubio, and then Rubio does stuff. And maybe yeah. Towns will get there in a couple of years, and that would be great. To be able to basically say, when a ball goes up, if you are not close to the, to the basket, you can just go, and the other guys can figure it out, Is it's kind of revolutionary in a way, just because of how each player has to think about their role.
2: Yeah, and I think it's uh, it, it helps them do the other stuff they don't necessarily want to do, either. You know, like grabbing rebounds, for example, or even just playing defense. It's one of those things where, like, you know, it's not like the coach is dictating who gets the ball. It's kind of this sense that your effort is dictating it. Mm-hmm. Like, I think that really helped Miami earlier on, earlier on too, when they were uh, when they were learning. I, they got a lot of flack for it because you know, of course, it was that that first year in Miami where. Spoh said that whoever uh, whoever got the rebound and played defense could go uh, run the offense on the other end. But hey, in the end, it kind of helped uh, it helped them figure out a lot of stuff.
1: Yeah, and I was critical that they at that time that they didn't run enough. And I do think that part of that though was setting the defensive culture. And I, I, mm-hmm. I I'm not sure those have to be connected, like, I think it can be separate, but it certainly does help in terms of just, it makes it more likely, I guess is the way to put it. So yeah. while it while I'm being optimistic and saying you don't have to do them together, you know, I'm, I'm okay with that, especially considering the long-term outcome. Granted, it helps when you have three surefire Hall of Famers in their prime, and then you have a bunch of other stars that might end up being Hall of Famers sure. on the periphery. Doesn't hurt. Yeah, and so I think that's <laughs> the other part of this warrior story that we don't yet know, that I mean I, I was recording with Nate when the David West news came down and it I think that the idea of what they're going to be able to do with minimum salaries is, is pretty incredible and that does come down a lot on Bob Myers. Like I think that they're gonna have good choices but making the right picks among that group of people because you don't want too many guys that are too old. You don't want too many guys that are too raw. You know, you want to balance out all of these different pressures, with the idea also that almost all of these players are going to be taking one-year deals, so you're not mm-hmm. really building an asset base. You're more just having these talented players and just using them, like you know, finding the right balance both for now and for more importantly for June of next year.
2: Yeah, and you know, it really also helps them. That this isn't again like we keep making this parallel, but it isn't the Miami situation where they. Do you have a lot of uh good complementary pieces in the first place, so I honestly kind of feel like if this thing works, like Bob Myers could, could do a bad job and it still wouldn't matter.
1: That's true. Like so that was something uh, something I've talked with a few people about about, you know, depending on how they build this, that they're that now they're resilient. And what I mean by that is they can last year they clearly couldn't survive an injury. They got close, but they couldn't survive an injury to Curry. That kept them, you know, that that had him below 100. Like, below, I think he was probably about 70, 80 percent. That's where I'd ballpark it, having watched him for seven years. And they couldn't survive that because, you know, they had a lot. They had a lot of really insanely good guys, but they just didn't have many who could create for themselves and others. Now, that's not a problem. You know, now I think they could survive. I think they could win a title, depending on how they how they structure everything else. They could win a title without one of Curry or Durant for for some period of time.
2: Well, they got pretty damn close last year, so...
1: Yeah. It's such a fascinating thing, and also, uh, something that I've been considering, we don't know, and they have a lot more to do to get to where, not even to where the Warriors are, but to get to a, a, even where the Cavs are, but I think this, in conjunction with the Al Horford signing, puts Boston in the in the position to do something really interesting, because they have a ton of assets and a ton of cap space, and so... If they can kind of use this as, let's say, anger feel for some good players to be like, fine, well, if you guys are teaming up, we're going to have to team up. They can say, well, if you do it with us, this is your best chance.
2: Well, they got to knock on Oklahoma's door and see what what, uh, what, the Lakers are offering for Russell Westbrook and see if they can they can do one better. And, and they or they at could, the and least they, force the Lakers to give up it. Like, you know, right now I'm thinking probably Brennan Ingram, Russell, and the pick would do it. Like, at least... Make the call and forcefully because to scarf up another one, right,
1: yeah, you can do it that way too, or if you're if you want to be really aggressive, you trade some of those draft assets, either guys that they 've already picked or future ones, and get somebody like Jimmy Butler who 's under contract, and then say, "Hey, look, we already have two all we 're looking for is a third, and then sign him as a free agent or trade for mm-hmm. both of them yeah it 's insane, like the the possibilities that they could do. And Boston, you know, of course, has a legacy of, uh, in the NBA and all that. And so I, I think there's a possibility that this has some massive spillover effects. And also, Cleveland is incredibly good, and they're going to be good for the next few years as well.
2: Another destination that I would like to see, Russell Westbrook, actually. So I, was, I, I floated this yesterday, too. And I know, like, you can't do it straight up because uh, well, Kevin Love's stock in this league is severely diminished. And even before that, Westbrook is considerably better about him. But, like, I would love the idea of something pairing – uh, westbrook for for love and i get that it's redundant with Kyrie, but you know i think they could find it, like a dual point guard lineup is not my worry especially with the way that russell when he wants to can play defense well and just and Kyrie's but, good off the ball yeah yeah he, he can shoot off the ball you know i think it i think it would work out just fine and but on the other hand just i, I just picture clay bennett's pockets bleeding right now and what better way to fix that than kevin love in the city of oklahoma there's never been a more perfect match in my eyes. I think
1: I have one that's more perfect for me. Blake Griffin.
2: Mhm. Yeah. So,
1: so there, there are a couple different ways that you can do that deal. W- of course, it depends on Doc doing something different than he has generally done. But I mean, to me, if if Russ is willing to commit to them long term, you trade Blake for Russ any day of the week. If you're if you're Doc, you do that. If he if he comes to some sort of agreement. And then, yeah, you have to figure out the Chris Paul thing. Maybe you play them together like they used to do with So You can do it that way. Or, you know, maybe then you start to think about what I advocated for during the year, which is trading Chris Paul. But what, what Russ gives them is he, makes, he shifts their age curve to a little bit younger. And why Oklahoma City, I think, would be making a mistake, but making a justifiable mistake, is that Blake Griffin from very close to that area Mm -hmm. he's that guy and he is i would guess i don't know this for sure because i don't know what's in his what's in his heart i guess would be the way to put it but i think he is the star most likely to re-sign in oklahoma though of course you can do that as they did before with draft picks Mm -hmm. and those guys can't leave for nine years so you can do it that way too
2: yeah
1: uh the other the other westbrook destination sorry to jump on that Um, I, there are two that I've kind of kept in the rattling around the back of my brain, two other ones. One is Minnesota just because the pure basketball standpoint of, you know, if Carl Towns is the next guy, which I I think he very well could be, then getting a part of that next year would be huge. And the other one is you never, you know, you can never write off Miami because they're going to have a lot of talent. They already have a, they'll have a center in line and they'll, at that point, Dragic, you know, assuming he stays healthy this year, if they can move his contract without too much of a problem.
2: Yeah, so for for Minnesota, do you, you think the same offer that they had for Jimmy Butler would get it done, or I think I think they would have to, or like at least what the what the Bulls wanted, which was I think it was draft, uh, it was it was a uh, it was done.
1: It was the pick that became
2: done, and yeah, well, and, and, I think the Bulls and, are pretty high on and John, the Rumor so. was that
1: it was going to be Levine, but they were reluctant yeah. to see that. Of course, that's just a rumor. We don't know if that was true. That's an option. I would also, I mean, it would be bold, but consider the idea of trying to trying to sign Russ as a free agent because then you don't have to give up anything.
2: Yeah, that's true.
1: But they could also, depending on who they gave up in the trade, Minnesota could, I think, use cap space to renegotiate and extend him. I would have to look up to see if they have exactly enough space to do that. Because that's the other elephant in the room for for Westbrook, is that while he would benefit, you know, like we talked about the rising cap again next year and everything like that, if he can get a, I think it's a $9 million raise on this year, that offsets a lot of those other gains. so if he if he let's say he's not willing to renegotiate and extend with Oklahoma City, which mm-hmm. I wouldn't which is... do if I were him just because their future is so uncertain now,
2: yeah, I just doesn't... I don't see why there's any motivation for him to do that. and there was that report with that uh, David Aldridge uh, tweeted out that he was not considering it too, so
1: right, but I, yeah. I think that I think that he might be willing to do that somewhere else so boston would have the space to do that Mm -hmm. minnesota would have the space to do that depending on what they gave up the lakers might have the space to do that so that's another reason to that could actually elevate his trade value for oklahoma city as much as it would be terrible to lose him would be if you kind of let him get a feel for that and say hey we can come to an agreement right now because then that's not nebulous value that's not serge Ibaka and being like oh well we get the chance to Mm -hmm. offer him a fifth year that's we get this. We're basically trading for him on a four-year contract, yeah. and you can price that value in. Mm-hmm. So, if you were to pick personally for your own whatever whatever thing you want, if you were to pick a the next destination for Russ, what would it be?
2: Oh, I have to go Cleveland. Oh man, like, I, that'd be so I crazy. Just, it'd be so crazy. And just I all I'm thinking about right now is the finals with Russell and LeBron. Just those two, how much they completely hate Steph Curry. And then Russell probably – like, I don't – it's hard to say, especially given recent reports, what his relationship with Durant is or will be after. Like, I don't – they seem they seem tight. and Maybe it'll be, like, LeBron and Dwayne where, you know, Dwayne wasn't necessarily pissed off at him for leaving Miami. But, yeah, I, I, I'd have to think – I'd have to think that that's a pretty unique situation and uh, Russell will be pretty peeved. I can't – like, just the sheer anger and, the, like – I can already just, like, the narratives are boiling up in my head right now. Like, the Curry versus LeBron and Westbrook thing is just so delicious.
1: You probably know this better than I do, but isn't there a little bit of iciness between Durant and LeBron as well?
2: Uh, I don't... Not from, uh, I mean, I might be wrong, but uh, aren't they friends?
1: I think they're friends, but I think LeBron is probably a little chap that that Durant, like, you know, when, when Durant took the mantle, not only as the MVP, but as the best player in the league, from LeBron, considering how mad LeBron was about that with Curry, and considering how good LeBron was three years ago, I imagine yeah. it was a little bit, it's not like that, it's more like maybe like you're a little brother who you like, but he starts getting some shine and you get a little bit, not jealous, but you get a little peeved by it.
2: Sure, yeah. I'm guessing yeah. it's
1: something like that. And, yeah, that wouldn't
2: shock me at all.
1: And so, yeah, you you would have all of those, kind of a lot of those dynamics together. Uh, and I, I would love, for me, I'd love Minnesota. It's funny to have him go there after his former UCLA teammate left. And, mm-hmm. I, and I mean, even if you could incorporate a Russ deal that would keep love together, that would be interesting just because those guys, from what I know, they still really like each other as well. But, I mean, of course, Russ Kyrie is amazing, so if you can yeah. maintain that, that's amazing. And so, yeah, I mean, that's a, that's a really interesting idea. I hadn't honestly considered very much before now. But, yeah, it's I, I'm really excited just in terms of the combination, not necessarily, this isn't really a Durant thing, but it does reflect it, of how much player flexibility and movement there is now with the revised kind of prioritizing for players now because what I think we're seeing is these guys are understanding that there's a greater world and that these these perceptions and you know the jersey burnings for LeBron and everything else all those things are temporary and winning winning a championship in particular is is the ultimate antiseptic I mean people just that that's just it affects the way everything is I mean Miami's, people will remember that for LeBron. I mean, Bosh's legacy was so enhanced by that. Mm-hmm. You know, I would say Wade's is substantially as well, especially because he, he, even though he still has never been the highest paid player on the Heat, I, I think his legacy has been, you know, he's he's Mr. Miami in part because he made that happen. And so I think guys can see that and understand that it's a lot better to be I'm trying to think of the analogy. It's a lot better to be Chris Bosh in some ways, from a legacy perspective, than it is to be Karl Malone.
2: Yeah, absolutely. And especially, like, especially if you compare it to Karl Malone, I think maybe a more fair comparison would be Reggie Miller. But Karl Malone now just has a reputation of being a choker. And I think Kevin Durant, if he stayed, maybe it would be more of a Miller type thing. But I think you're completely right there. And you know, when you look at when you look back at Miami and how that's all played out, it's really clear that. Whatever is going on with Durant right now won't last. Like you had, Well, speaking of Reggie Miller, he had that article come out today on Bleacher Report where he was just like, you know, you never go to... Um, a king never leaves his mansion for another king's mansion. Essentially saying that this is Curry's team and it'll always be Curry's team. That's exactly what people said about Miami and Wade and LeBron. And you know what? Like, we are now... Six years removed from that, that was, that is not Wade's team. That, like, we're not gonna look back and be like, oh yeah, Wade's Heat, and LeBron was there too, and he was a sidekick. No, those, like, those championship years were LeBron's team.
1: Yeah, and the Celtics are an even more prominent example of that. I mean, Paul Pierce was the established star, but that KG, yeah. those are that's KG's title. Like I was yeah. say, those are, but they only had one. Th- that's KG's title in that way, and of course it's the big three, and it's them together, and they won in their first year. I was going to say this earlier. I think the analogy that I would use for the Russ KD dynamic is kind of like when you when you have a, a breakup, especially if it's a bad breakup. But then a couple of years after the fact, you're both in good places. Mm -hmm. And so it just takes away a lot of the tension because you realize that things just ended up working out. And, And I think that's part of why... It's important that Russ ends up in a good situation in that way, is because then you know then everybody moves on except for Oklahoma City, sadly enough. Yeah, but of hopefully course, they of hopefully course. the picks work out. You know whatever they get for Russ, that works out and everyone's better, which is certainly possible.
2: Yeah, I mean it's it's definitely a possibility. Oklahoma is one of the best teams at drafting out there, and they've always, aside from Durant, had a reputation of trading their guys for assets rather than letting them walk. So you know I th- I think uh, I think they'll have a lot up their sleeve in the upcoming maybe weeks and. Hopefully years, too. Yeah. Uh,
1: anything else that you can think of that we should should hit on this before? I'm sure we'll talk about it later on as well.
2: Yeah, I mean, we'll we'll be talking about this, and our minds will work themselves over for, for the next few weeks and, until we really figure out how we feel about this. Yeah, if anything, I would add that, like, you know, I'm, originally I was getting a sense that this would be a coup for the league and just having this villain again. But the more I think about it, and I just, I want to ask you this question because I'm not really sure. Just, you know, sometimes just being in the Twitter bubble and, like, just being in Edmonton, Alberta, Siberia, it's it's one of those things where like, you can't really get a grasp on what the, what the average fan is thinking. I think maybe you would have a better idea just from, you know, being in the Bay Area and stuff like that. I'm wondering, if you're not a basketball fan, how much did you really ever care about Kevin Durant in the first place?
1: I think that... He was on the radar if you cared about basketball. And maybe the, MV- the MVP speech, I think, was something that got a little bit bigger, that got bigger than-, yeah. bigger than him and bigger than the NBA. But I don't think he was ever at the point that, like, LeBron or Steph Curry or, you know, MJ or those guys reached. He was one of those guys who was like, he's really good and maybe you know his name. But yeah, maybe you don't like if you see him on a on a billboard, let's say it's a Nike billboard and he's the only one on it. I'm not sure that a like even a like a let's say a ca- a casual basketball fan, of course, would but like right. a, a non basketball casual sports fan, much less a just person who who's kind of ambivalent. I'm not sure they would see that and go, oh, that's Kevin Durant. He's X, XYZ Whereas with Steph and with LeBron, that certainly does happen.
2: Yeah, I was thinking about it. I think if you're just, like, a layman, you're more likely to know who James Harden is than you are to know who Kevin Durant is. Yeah,
1: it helps that he's distinctive looking, but yeah, I
2: think yeah. that's true. Yeah, and it's it's a branding thing, too, but it just it just brings me to the point that, you know, maybe this just won't matter. I think there's this sense of people are trying to find a way to hate something right now. Because I think certain people just do that and then they congregate on the internet. But a lot of the stuff that we're seeing in reaction to Katie, it's almost like a reproduction of, Le- of the LeBron stuff in a very inorganic way, like the jersey burning. Like with LeBron, it was kind of like it was a very carnal thing that happened. People just did it. And this, like, you know, people are taping it now and it's like a performance and they're trying to show that they hate him. And I don't think that will last the way that it did for LeBron. And on that note, that could also mean that it might not be the big rating spike that a lot of people think it might be. Because at the end of the day, when LeBron left Cleveland, he meant a lot of different things to a lot of people that were outside of Cleveland and a lot of people that weren't necessarily the biggest basketball fans. He He was important to people because they thought about him a lot. And I think him making a different decision kind of made people have to kind of rejig the way that they think about things. And I just don't think that Katie is that much of a cultural figure. So I I don't think think he'll elicit the same amount of scorn. Or, you know, if this is redemptive, it won't be as good of a story.
1: That's a great, great point. And that could lead to an idea of the attention shifting from, instead of it being Durant leaving to Durant, of being Durant leaving to the Warriors. And I think, considering what we saw this past year, of course, on this subject, I'm in a bubble because of living in the Bay Area. But it seemed like the Warriors were such a big story that will basically be insured for this season no matter what. Because not only are they coming back from 73, but of course with Durant. So I mm-hmm. think that's where the story will shift, is it will shift from Durant being the centerpiece and being the villain to Durant being a, a piece of it. Maybe kind of the equivalent of... When, like, in, in the Marvel universe, when one of the characters has their own movie, and then they're in the Avengers, and so it's like, then then that's the story. The story is them t- taking a part in something bigger, and I think maybe that's what Durant becomes. It's just a... It's a wrinkle in a bigger thing.
2: Yeah, maybe. It was like the whole, I want to be the servant thing. Yeah. I'd work out for
1: him. Well, thank you so much for taking time. Always a pleasure to talk to you.
2: Yeah, yeah, you too. Thanks for having me on.
1: Thanks to Sirit for taking the time. You can read her at Rolling Stone, Vice... And numerous other outlets, including actually The Athletic, she wrote a really nice piece about Stephen Curry and Muhammad Ali after Ali's passing, which I I highly recommend that you read. You can also follow her on Twitter at Damian Trillard, D-A-M-I-A-N-T-R-I-L-L-A-R-D. I'd also like to take a minute to talk to you about Blue Apron and Blue Apron has been incredible for me because I'm the son of two amazing chefs. Um, Nate likes to talk about my dad because he could be a gourmet chef but has another career but my mom is amazing as well and the benefit of that is that I grew up eating amazing food but the downside is that I didn't get to spend much time in the kitchen so I had to build up that confidence as an adult and Blue Apron has played an incredible role in that. Their goal is to make incredible home cooking, accessible to everyone, and doing that through quality ingredients. And so it is a great gateway into that kind of cooking confidence because you get to get incredibly high quality ingredients, excellent instructions, and really good ideas. As an example, there was a Fontina cheeseburger, which was amazing, that I did last week. And it involved a really great garlic aioli, which I had never made before. And I liked it, it was very simple. So I just started making it on other things. I had a sandwich a couple nights ago and used it on that and it's awesome and that's what Blue Apron does is it it is a great product if you just want to have it as excellent food you can get it for less than $10 per person per meal it's great for that but in some ways for me more importantly it is a way to build confidence as a cook and that is something that is incredibly useful skill to get later on and that you can grow your cooking repertoire and your skill set if you want to call it that and through Real GM Radio, you can actually get a discount. So you can go to blueapron.com slash realgm, and you can see what they have, and your first three meals will be free, and that includes free shipping. So you can check it out and see see if you love it as much as I do. I've been on it for months, and I've been blown away by the quality of the product. So that's blueapron.com slash realgm. Next up is my conversation with Dan Feldman. He writes for NBC's Pro Basketball Talk and is one of the few people on this planet who is as big a CBA nerd as I am. He's an incredible writer as well. And so we talked for about an hour about the offseason so far, winners, losers, and all that. And we recorded this before Dwayne Wade signed with Chicago. So if parts of it feel a little bit anachronistic. It's because we recorded it before all that happened. So again, about an hour, hour five, and I hope you love it. Thanks so much for coming on.
0: Thanks for having me.
1: Let's start with, and I mean, there will be some obvious ones, but just what off-seasons you've really liked so far?
0: Uh, I think the Warriors have done okay.
1: Just a little bit.
0: You know, Kevin Durant is fine. You know, but even on top of that, I love adding Zaja Pachulia for the room exception. David West, at the minimum, is a steal, even if he's washed up. The chance he's not, he was pretty good last year. I mean, they're... Not only did they get Kevin Durant, they're somehow maximizing everything else possible around it.
1: And that is one of the ancillary benefits of kind of starting a super team is that you will get those, if you want to call them ring chasers, that's fine, just people who want to be a part of that. And with the NBA's current structure, with minimum salaries being so low, it's actually an even bigger benefit for the Warriors than it was in prior years.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Uh, another one is is the Celtics landing out Horford. I think he's an excellent fit there and probably vaults them into being the second best team in the East.
1: I agree with you. And it also, the getting that done without sacrificing any assets now, to me, makes it possible that they could create something really special, whether that be nailing the remaining Brooklyn picks or using any combination of their assets to get other guys. Like, I was thinking about the other day about the possibility that in two years they could have a core where Al Horford is their third best player.
0: Yeah, yeah, that's, that's pretty impressive. You have to give the Grizzlies a lot of credit. Keeping Mike Conley, it would have been a disaster if he left, and then on top of it, you lure Chandler Parsons.
1: Yeah, that I I think they did a a really good job. Also, just kind of using using the space around it. I was a little bit disappointed that they weren't able to retain Matt Barnes. Though I understand why he left.
0: Yeah, I mean he was he was a nice player to have around, but he's old. He's defied aging for a little while, and even as he slips some, he's still been productive. I wouldn't count on him. He could be productive the next couple years but i wouldn't count on that
1: and then in the draft they got wade baldwin who i liked and then they got Deontay davis and uh i can't remember his name the guy who's going to play in europe for at least one year
0: <laughs> um
1: but they got those for the pick that they received in the jeff green trade so uh, that you know that's th- i think that's a nice use of what was probably going to be a distant pick is to just get two solid seconds with a guy Deontay davis who was on most boards a first round pick
0: yeah absolutely uh, and if we're including the draft i'll add the 76 Seventy getting Ben Simmons, and then I thought they nailed their next two first rounders with uh, Timothy Luowu and Furcon Korkmaz. And none of their free agent signings really moved the needle for me one way or the other, but that's not a negative.
1: Yeah, I really like Sergio Rodriguez. I've just liked him as a player forever. He, him and Rudy were those kind of those guys that I just was really excited to watch. And of course, they're older now, and we don't know if they're going to get Rudy. I, I heard a rumor that they were interested, but I, I, I mentioned this with Nate. I wrote it in our notes when we were talking about that. Is that Sergio Rodriguez is the type of move that if Sam Hinkie had made it, he would have kept his job because he's good enough that he would have made them watchable, made them entertaining, but not so good that they would have actually, you know, won a lot of games.
0: Yeah, I think that's a good point. You, it's a fine line. You know, with what Hinkie was trying to do, he obviously didn't want to win too many games.
1: Yeah, that's true. But I don't, I don't, I think it would have been more analogous to like what Jeremy Lin did on the Lakers, where he made them more watchable, but they still were bad.
0: Oh, see, I well. I just thought the Lakers just sort of ruined Jeremy Lin. I didn't find him really watchable with the Lakers. I, you know, I think they just sort of sapped him of all the fun elements of his game.
1: I, now you're making me kind of want to rewatch that, but I think the <laughs> Lakers have been so sad the last few years that I'm not sure I pointed to anything specific then. But you're you're right in terms of his value. He ended up for whatever reason he ended up signing that deal with Charlotte, and then he actually that's a good tie-in because another team that I thought did very well so far is the Brooklyn Nets, and the Nets have really ascribed to the idea of. No bad contracts. I thought that getting a, getting 20 for for Thaddeus Young was fine. You know, it's a, maybe a little bit low. I didn't love Levert, but it's fine. But then getting Justin Hamilton, getting Jeremy Lin, those are both good, and we'll have to see if anything happens with Alan Crabb.
0: Yeah, I'm with you. And Tyler Johnson, either you're going to give the Heat something that's going to be a huge headache in two years, or you're going to get a nice player who I think has, has a nice savvy for the game. At a, you know, maybe a little bit of an overpay at twelve and a half million per year, but what else are you going to spend the money on?
1: Yeah, I, th- I, it's a challenge for me. So I was Miami in our mock off season, and Kevin Pelton as the Sixers made this exact offer, and I matched it partially because I am higher on Tyler Johnson than most people. But I, it's a huge concern for Miami just because if they match, it goes in as the actual years, so that means that they're going to have to this big thing to deal with in twenty eighteen and then 2019.
0: Yeah, and, you know, maybe it is worth matching, and you can figure it out later, and if you have to dump him or stretch him, you can. I mean, even if you bring back Dwayne Wade, you need to have some depth around around that team, and there isn't much right now.
1: Also, I think that there will be a market for him, let's say, like, a the, the deadline next year or something like that, just because if he, if he develops a little bit, if he gets some time to shine, then then you can use that to your advantage and just say hey look this guy this guy's pretty good and then somebody will ju- at that point the you know the 15 16 million probably won't look as bad because the cap spike will have already the next spike will have already happened so that might be an option as well so maybe you don't wait like the rockets did until Jeremy Lin gets the balloon payment you just do it right you do it a little bit earlier and also, I, I, as much as I like Josh Richardson, I'm not completely sold if Miami wants to be competitive to say, okay, we're just going to give all of our guard minutes to those three, to Wade, Dragic, and Josh Richardson, and be like, okay, we're fine. Like, I, I would rather have a fourth guy.
0: Oh, yeah. I mean, there's no question Tyler Johnson makes them better next year. It's just what complications would be coming down the road when, you know, a team like the Heat, they dream big. They want to compete for championships. That's their mindset. They're not the type of organization that settles. Next year, they're not going to win a championship. You know, they, they didn't get Kevin Durant. They didn't bring back LeBron James or any other pipe dreams that were out there. Uh, so maybe the, they're not quite as interested in being better next year if that's going to ham, you know, hamstring their efforts down the road.
1: I think that's a responsible way of thinking about it. And one team that is trying to, I guess, be good in the short term and the long term that I thought did a nice job is Utah. So Utah, they traded their first-round pick for George Hill, who I love the fit there. It is a little bit weird for a rental player just because, you know, Utah's is going to have such a bright future. But they have so many young dudes, I'm not as opposed to it. And they could renegotiate and extend one of our favorite concepts, both of us. And then on top of that, they signed Joe Johnson to a lucrative but somewhat reasonable deal. And then they traded for Boris Diaz's expiring contract, and one of my favorite moves of the offseason so
0: far. I'm with you. I think, uh, you know, you look around what free agents were available – I don't know how they could have done any better than Boris Dion. You get him at a pretty low cost. And, I, you know, I think he adds an element to that team where, yes, you know, there was some ball movement uh, from perimeter players uh, who weren't point guards, you know, Gordon Hayward and, and uh, Rodney Hood. But to add that from a, a power forward, I – I just, you know, I, I think it's going to open up things for their offense, which they need because they're going to have minutes where where you get your top talent out there. It's Rudy Gobert and and Derek Favors. You don't have that floor spacing, and it's going to make things tough for everybody. But then you can put in Boris Diaw as a change of pace, and yes, the defense will take a step back. But you, the way you can open up things offensively, it it adds an element, an important element, I think.
1: And they're going to get quality defense from point guard a lot more of the time because they'll have Exxon this year and they'll have George Hill, so I think that will help as well. I mean, granted, their defense was very good last year, and they'll have Alec Burks, presumably, who is also a quality defender. And with Diaw, it also puts a lot less pressure on Trey Lyles immediately, but Diaw only has one more year, only this year guaranteed. So you're not sitting there going, oh, we're stunning his development. You know, he'll still get time to play. They can still do that, but you don't have to take the risk of, oh, if if he's not ready to go, then we're kind of screwed. So I think that's a big thing for them.
0: I see the Jazz as the type of team, depending on the lineup on the floor, that can be excellent defensively and now pretty good, maybe even very good offensively. Uh, some of the issues, they probably can't be both at the same time too often, which is what the truly you know great teams can do, the best teams in the league. But not a lot of teams can be both at different points, so I, I really see the Jazz also as a team on the rise.
1: Yeah, I think that they're probably not going to, now that Oklahoma City's fallen off a little bit, I don't think they're going to be the third seed, but I think they have a real shot at, at the four, which would be huge for them.
0: Yeah, I'm with you.
1: But the, yeah, it's it's amazing to say that about a team that hasn't even made the playoffs with like most of the members of their current core. They have made it with some. Hayward's made the playoffs once, you know, a couple of years ago back when they had Paul Millsap, if memory serves. But they don't have Paul Millsap anymore. And uh, any other any other positive off seasons that really that really stuck out to you as being good?
0: Yeah, I really like the Nuggets. I mean, starting with their with their draft, I I thought they. Uh... Did a good job all around letting Jamal Murray fall to them, letting Juan Hernan Gomez fall to them. You know, just being patient, taking the best player available worked well for them in, in previous years. And I think it'll work well again to keep Daryl Arthur at an affordable price, I think, is good. Uh, and now they're in the mix for Dwayne Wade. I, You know, there's a, even a little more upside at the end of the tunnel. So, you know, I I think they're the team that's in position where maybe they could take a jump next year. And if not, they're still very young and their window is, you know, not yet open.
1: Yeah, their window is is crazy because they don't even have any guys who are extension eligible this year. They have a lot of really young guys that haven't been in the league that long, which means that they're going to be cheap longer so they can spend money on Darrell Arthur. They can spend money theoretically even on Dwayne Wade without compromising much. And that's a really nice place to be. And I don't love the fit of Wade, but I do I do like that they're kind of going for it a little bit in that way. And, you know, it also puts some pressure on Miami, and I'm sure there's there's some perverse enjoyment in that as well. The other team that I, I was just intrigued by is Charlotte. And so the reason why Charlotte is com- is compelling to me is that they got two talented players who were desirable on the free agent market in Marvin and Nikola Vucevic to take pay cuts and that allowed them to build not a perfect core around them but a pretty good group. Yeah,
0: I thought the the Hornets did fine, I guess. I guess I'm just docking them a little bit for putting themselves in this position. They really sold out last year for a few playoff wins, not even a playoff series win. And then you're in this position this year where where you really can't keep Jeremy Lin and Courtney Lee and, and you lose those guys. I mean, dealing with what they were, dealing with going into the offseason, I think they did well. Uh, to get Batum to re-sign and, and not having to pay him his full max, that's, that's good. I thought they'd probably have to pay the full max. Marvin Williams, I think, is a tremendous deal, one of the best free agent signings of the year, how he took that little... I don't know. But they did lose Jeremy Lin. They didn't lose Courtney Lee. Like, I think this is probably a team that's going to take a step back from one that didn't even win a playoff series this year. Maybe that was inevitable, but it's, you know, still disappointing to see it play out.
1: You were Charlotte in the mock off season, right? Yes. So we recorded that the Friday after the draft. How did you react as Charlotte? Like thinking like so cause, you, cause I was watching the draft as you were kind of thinking with your teams in mind when they traded the twenty second pick for Marco Bellinelli.
0: <laughs> well <laughs> I mean I also did not like that trade. I probably didn't hate it quite as much as you did. I know you were very, very against it, but I didn't like it either. But I guess I was just going into it thinking like, hey, the Hornets are gonna probably send a max offer to Batum and he'll keep they'll keep him. And then they'll pick one of the other three and keep him. And that's sort of where I was before and after the trade. And that's, I guess, what ended up happening. They kept Batum. They didn't have to extend the full max to do it. uh, But then they picked Marvin Williams as the other one, and they kept him. And so I don't think trading for Bellinelli was going to swing that one way or the other, where they also would have been able to keep Courtney Lee or Jeremy Lemp.
1: Especially since those guys were both unrestricted free agents, and there were parts of Charlotte's pitch to them that were per- less desirable than, than it, most notably being that their New York and Brooklyn had very likely starting spots for both of them on, you know, different teams, but teams that could be interesting to them.
0: Yes, I mean, Courtney Lee would have been the, the one. I guess I never thought Marvin Williams would take such so little money. But once that, I happened, mean, maybe you could have swung something with Courtney Lee because unlike Jeremy Lin, you would have had his full bird rights and he had a relatively low cap hold. And, you know, maybe there was something to be worked out there if you didn't trade for Bellinelli. Uh, but based on what I knew at draft night, I, I did not think that that would have been possible.
1: Yeah, and. and- Batum taking so little money, I mean, before we get to the team that I think is both, uh, are there any other ones that you think of as, like, standout good ones?
0: Nobody's coming to mind as, like, I mean, there were certain moves I liked here and there, but a lot of those were by teams where they made other moves that were a little more questionable or, you know, just had bad fortune. Do you have anybody else?
1: Well, so the team that I thought was the transition is Orlando, and Orlando (laughs) had... At this point, you know we're recording this on Tuesday, July fifth, in the evening. They've had one of the strangest off seasons I can remember because I. So I'll give my opinion on it first, and then you can you can give yours, or we can go. What do you want to go piece by piece?
0: <laughs> it's a funny question because, I mean, in one sense we should sort of look at this holistically. In another sense, I don't know if we can. I mean, it all just seems very piecemeal in Orlando.
1: So the draft, the draft trade, as as much as. There are mixed opinions of it on Oklahoma City. I'm more negative than most. It's certainly a strange bet from Orlando's perspective, considering they have no special ability to retain Serge Ibaka, especially now that they've used up their cap space.
0: Well, I'd add the caveat, and this is you know something that comes up you know when you talk about Batum, and I'm not talking about any specific situation here, whether it's Ibaka or a Batum, but a way this often works in a general sense is that before trading for an unrestricted free agent, a team will talk to him or his agent and get an idea of how much money they're looking for, what assurances could be made on either side and have a picture of that. You know what the, what it would take to get a Baca to commit right now. I don't know whether he would, I don't know whether the magic would trust him. I don't know. I mean, the, you know, there has to be a trust there because as jo, uh, Joe Smith taught us, you don't write this down. You don't, put this in writing, but if you can come to terms on a deal beforehand, before these trades, it can help all sides.
1: That's true. Uh, would you, if you, knowing what we know right now, if what he said is what I want is a full max deal with the, rise, with the raised cap, would you do that?
0: I wouldn't trade all that for him knowing that's like what it would take to, like if he said, hey, if you offer me the full max, I promise to resign. And even if I believe that, You know, I believe like, he would never, he wouldn't leave her greener pastures. No, I would not trade all that to get him just to pay him that much.
1: Would you? I don't think I would because we're, we'll know a lot more information. Like I, I wouldn't do that now for sure. Like of course the extension system is broken and they can't. So so but I, because we just need to see how he is physically. Because during the year especially there were moments where he looked at least a half a step slow. And if that's yep. like a truth now, then that of course becomes a huge issue. Just because he's his athleticism is a part of the package that makes him so special. And so if that's reduced now. Then when you're signing him to a five-year deal at the new max, that's going to be terrifying. So I would lean towards no. And again, I, I wouldn't have made the trade in the first place if those were the demands. I agree with you on that. And the other scary part of it for for Orlando's perspective is, well, there is a possibility that they have a very good year, I don't. I think there's a, a very real chance that they have a negative enough year that that makes him less interested in re-signing. You know, it's the kind of thing of like, oh, well, if we can make him a, a really lucrative offer that he'd be interested. But if he knows, it, the parallel to this might actually be Dwight Howard with the Lakers. Of like, once they know how messed up it is, maybe they don't want to come
0: back. Yeah, that's a good point. I mean, the main way I looked at the Ibaka trade was, okay, were the Magic a playoff team without making that trade? Probably not. Are they a playoff team after making that trade? Depends on what they did in free agency, which is exactly where they were before the trade. I just I don't think it moved the needle enough to trade all you know some young players with upside for, for a backup when you're at that stage of team building and he's a year away from free agency. I just didn't get it.
1: Yeah, and not only did they give up Oladipo, but they also gave up the number 11 pick, and while it wasn't a strong draft, that's still a, a capable asset. You and I have both focused on how valuable a, a, a deep, well-picked first-round choice was this year because of the rookie scale.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the the Thunder might be at the point where they can't get enough of those guys.
1: Yeah. Okay, so then I, I think the biggest next thing was Biombo. And I, I think I like this deal more than almost anybody, but I, I'm just a believer in Biombo.
0: I am too. I mean, I think it was a steal. I think Biombo might have mistimed the market a little bit. Like, so he's going to get a little bit more than Mazgov's getting, right? Like, why would. I don't know if. The, maybe the Lakers just have different tastes, but I thought Biombo would have been an excellent fit with the Lakers. Like, if you're Biombo's agent and you hear that they're looking at Mozgov for that number, tell them, you know, Bianbo doesn't need that much more, and you can get somebody much younger, we don't know exactly how much younger, but much younger, and better.
1: Yeah, I I, I think Bianbo is a more versatile defender, and he's a better rebounder, and both of those things are incredibly important. He was a top 10 overall rebounder, and I think he was close to top 5 defensively. And then he's, you know, he's good offensively. I think he's top 25, something like that. And... So, yeah, people talk about how he, he can't score very much, and that is totally true. But for me, the most important thing a center can do is be the anchor of your defense. And I think he can do that even in the modern NBA where teams are trying some different stuff at center.
0: I'm with you. I mean, it's a weird fit, but for the dollars, you know, I I thought it, to some degree. So this is where I think the magic are as a team where this is a good move is, hey, you're not you're not there yet. You're not ready to win. There's something to just asset collection. You see an undervalued player on the market, you can get Biombo for a price that maybe is a little less than some of us thought he would get or even should get, swoop in and get him, and then you can figure some stuff out later.
1: Yeah, and if if those were the only moves that they did, like those types of moves, they would have had a really nice offseason, <laughs> because they, they did that, which I really liked, They and so they, they just kind of built this, but then they, right before they did that move, they paid fifteen million for one year to Jeff Green, which was crazy when they did it, but was even more insane when they ended up getting Bianca. Because I now I have no idea where Jeff Green plays on this team.
0: So I'm not as against the Jeff Green deal as others. As people I,
1: as people who don't like Jeff Green are.
0: Yeah, I mean I, <laughs> I'm I'm not as anti Jeff Green as others. I I don't know. I do think. I don't mind the idea of, hey, we have some extra money to spend. We would like to be good this year. Let's throw our extra money on a one-year contract to whoever the best player is who can ta- take it. I tend to think that probably wasn't Jeff Green, but I'm not quite as down on him to the point where I don't know it was. Like, we don't know who else would have taken that. So I, I'm just not totally sure that Jeff Green wasn't the best player who would have taken that.
1: And it's only a one-year deal, so even if you think that it's misguided, it's not catastrophic in that way. It's not like they're tying up money, let's say like Mozgov or something like that, where it could be an albatross in a couple years.
0: Exactly.
1: And one who could be an albatross in a couple years, DJ Augustine, which was another deal that I just didn't like. A a player who I think is perfect on a one-year contract just because he can be really inconsistent, and the craziest part is maybe his most down year recently was with Frank Vogel.
0: Well, so maybe Vogel learned, learned the lessons. I don't know. It's weird. I mean, you you have C.J. Watson, and you you obviously have Alfred Payton, who, you know, management very much seems to want to give a big role to. I, yeah, I, I'm with you. I thought Augustine was just another one where you're not getting good value. If you really need a backup point guard in your team ready to win, and that's going to make a difference between – Anything you know between making the playoffs and not, or winning a series or an extra series or not, it's okay numbers uh, on his salary. I wouldn't, lo- I don't love the four years, but if you need a point guard to win, okay. But where are you as a franchise? Is DJ Augustine going to nudge you in a direction or not?
1: Yeah, and especially because they, because they're having that money on Watson and and Payton and Augustine, they can't get like more of kind of. A lottery ticket point guard to be the extra guy who you know maybe it works out maybe it doesn't because you have those three guys and you have to feed those mouths and I I, I think that's a criticism as well because I personally I'm lower on Alfred Payton than most but you just want to have that high upside possibility even if it's a like a five five percent chance of happening
0: yeah I'm I we probably have similar thoughts on on Payton uh, but if you're gonna commit to him like you have to at least recognize that he's raw you know if that if you believe in Alfred Payton and it seems like the Magic do. You also have to recognize where he is, and he's just not there yet. And so, if you're going to play in big minutes, that means you're committing to somebody who's not there yet. Like it's going to be harder to make the playoffs. And so then you're adding guys like Jeff Green and Serge Ibaka, trying to make the and and Augustine trying to make the playoffs. There's a lot of different competing agendas happening.
1: Yeah, and then the other element the, on the good side of the Harvey Dent offseason season was
0: <laughs> I like that
1: was the idea that they got Evan Fournier at such a discount. Like I, the expectation, I think both of us felt this way was that Fournier was one of those guys who could get an offer sheet so rich that you would have to debate whether you want to match it or not. And instead they came to an agreement to take him off the market at a pretty significant discount.
0: You, you know, here's the thing that happens. And, and uh, I know Nate was like sort of eyeing this dynamic when he sort of reconfigured how we did the mock-off season where, Restricted free agents talk to their own teams first before exploring the market. It doesn't have to be that way, but it often seems like some there's some type of conversation where the team says to the agent, you know, hey, how much would we have to pay where you won't look for bigger offers? And maybe the agent underplays it. Maybe the agent says, you know, five years, eighty five million and even when the market would would have more out there, but there's also an element of trust That, you know, when DeAndre Jordan isn't involved, is usually uh, followed through. And so if they were talking about a, a certain deal, and both sides liked it without looking around, maybe that's just what ended up happening.
1: Yeah, and I think that could be similar to what happened with former Piston Chris Middleton and the Bucks. Was that I think yeah. I think there's a parallel that I think they both got about as much in five years as I think they could have gotten in four. But they had also both been in situations that they were much happier with than where they were before. They were getting more playing time. They were getting you know a different spot in the rotation. And Fournier was even more prominent with that because they just traded away the guy that was playing above him. So, like, okay, you got a spot here with a team that he had been on the Nuggets and kind of languished. So, I get it from that perspective as well, because some of the teams that would have been offering him a lot of money, maybe they would have given him a lot of playing time, but they wouldn't have been competitive. Like, it's hard, it would be hard for me, if I were a guy kind of like m Fournier if you didn't believe in the other moves they were going to make to, like, let's say, take the Sixers or the Nets money, where you think they're going to be awful for the next two, three
0: years. Yeah, but, I mean, the Sixers, I mean you got to have some foresight the sixers are very clearly a team on the rise where the magic are who knows
1: that's a good point yeah the, i mean the sixers especially after they were able to get ben simmons and i thought like you did that they nailed their draft picks top to bottom that's true that's a, that and, and i think those two teams in my mind were the two that would would have been most likely to make him an offer
0: yeah i thought the nets made a lot of sense too
1: uh the nets okay so then so that's that's kind of the the middle road of the offseason season were there any other ones, I have a couple in my mind, that really stood
0: out to you on the negative end? Oh, where to begin? Uh, I'm not saying they had, the, well, how about the Thunder? he lose Kevin Durant, it's hard to have much else go right of note, even, even though we both agree that they won the Serge Ibaka trade.
1: Yeah, and the weird thing about the Serge Ibaka trade, I don't think it factored much into Kevin Durant's decision, but it did make them, if he had come back, in my opinion, made them less competitive against the Warriors in particular, because Ibaka is part of what made them so special, you know, his versatility to play power forward, to play center, like, it was crazy that Steven Adams was their third best player in that series, but their best lineups, for the most part, were without Steven Adams.
0: Yeah, no, absolutely, Uh, and I don't think it was just against the Warriors, I... I really think we got to the point where the Thunder were taking Ibaka for granted. You know, the ability to stretch the floor and protect the rim is so rare, and it was so good next to other stars. So I don't, you know, Ibaka will have to expand his game a little bit to be that big of a difference maker in Orlando. But for the Thunder, I think he was very important against a lot of teams.
1: Yeah, Ibaka will get more used to that when he takes takes the middle-level exception and join the Warriors next year. (laughs) that would piss people off so much oh my god more than david west today but so so that i think that's a really good example of it also we'll see what they do with the rest of their off season well since i have you on and i don't know the next time we'll talk on a podcast what would your thought process be right now if you're sam presti with russell westbrook
0: i'm going to offer him to renegotiate and extend He's going to say no, and then I'm going to trade him for the best offer I can get before the season.
1: Would you be willing to do a renegotiation extension that only adds one year? So, like, you get him for this year and next
0: year? Yeah, sure. It'll boost his trade value. I'm still going to trade him.
1: <laughs> oh, that's that's dirty,
0: but hey, uh, but not a bad idea. I mean, you have to trade him. The big appeal to him returning to the Thunder was always going to be you can compete for championships with Kevin Durant now that's off the table what is there well how are you going to keep him the odds of him re-signing are so low what you could get in one season with him you know maybe a playoff series win maybe two if you get the right breaks it's not worth losing him for nothing a year from now I would absolutely trade him
1: and while there is the possibility that you know you could use him to woo Blake Griffin the odds of that combination coming together are so much lower than the chances of him leaving that it's not, it's not an
0: arbitrage opportunity. Yeah, I mean, you know, if, even if the combination comes together, are the odds that much higher of it happening in Oklahoma City as opposed to somewhere else?
1: Like the Clippers?
0: Yeah, or the Lakers if they move some pieces. I mean, there are so many other cities that could facilitate that and maybe be more appealing than Oklahoma City.
1: And and that's also why. Uh, so so going along with that, uh, something I've talked about with people before is the idea of having good choices, and why Oklahoma City needs to be scared with Westbrook, and why they should trade him if he won't go to an extension, is because there are going to be good offers on the table. Boston is is a notable one. The Clippers might be, depending on how they everything shakes out for them. There could be a couple others. Just I think I think that there will be some compelling things there, and not only necessarily just good teams, but good teams in significant markets. And so Oklahoma City has to be concerned with that, that if there's another team that gives him a better chance to win a very similar money, and uh, let's say it's a desirable city for whatever reason, you know, whether it be LA, which is home for him or somewhere else, I think that that is very dangerous for them. And that ties in with a team that I think is a significant loser of this offseason is the Lakers. And Part of the reason is that I think that they misevaluated talent with Mozgov. As much as I, I, I think that this season underserved him, that he, you know, by, by coming back so quickly, he, you know, he hurt his value and he hurt himself physically. But giving him four years is just a really big mistake. Dang, instead, like, even giving him almost the same money for two years would have been, just opened them up a little bit more. And then I was really bothered by what they did with Jordan Clarkson.
0: Yep. I, You know, when you said who had the worst offseason, the Lakers came to mind. I was trying to think of, is there anywhere to start but the Lakers? And, I, yeah, here's what I will say in defense of the Jordan Clarkson deal. And this is half-hearted and devil's advocate and a very weak defense. But by signing him directly instead of having another team sign an offer sheet that would be backloaded and have him have a low cap number the next two years, giving the team more flexibility to sign free agents in a time when we're pretty certain they would have or at least could have had cap space maybe that's okay because it's better to pay him now because look at if all they can attract are the Luol dangs and timothy Mozgovs of the world maybe it's better to to just pay clarkson some money now and have his salary lower in future years because the lakers have realized they're so far behind that they're not going to be anywhere till 2019 anyway
1: and in a way, they bet against getting Russell Westbrook because he is the guy that was the most direct candidate for that. And I thought drafting Brandon Ingram was the right move. I thought it was it was reasonable with what they did. And while I'm not the biggest fan at all of Julius Randle, I, I thought they had a little bit of an argument. But now they have a lot less financial flexibility, so they can't add as much around him if he said yes. But I don't think they're good enough. You know, I don't think those guys added enough to the Lakers to say to make that sales pitch. So I think that they kind of closed the door on that. And you're right, though, that you could make a, let's say, a reasonable inference that considering how tepid their market was, because you think about markets usually in terms of players, but it's also true in terms of teams. Like, if, if Al Horford doesn't return your calls, that's not a good sign.
0: <laughs> that's very true. I, I guess I, I wouldn't go as far as to say to close the door on Russell Westbrook. I don't think that's the case. Uh, because yeah, that's a, true. That's fair. Because right. nice young core here, and if Westbrook's forward-thinking and wants to be in a big market like L.A. and a prestigious team like the Lakers still are, he could, you know, everybody's criticizing Durant for going to a a winning team, and that's a whole other thing. But if Russell Westbrook goes to the Lakers, a team full of young talent that's ready to blossom right before they blossom, Westbrook would get so much credit for leading that team, even if the Lakers just make the the growth that should have been expected without him.
1: And that's exactly why... If I'm the Lakers I would not give up a, a, a notable sum of young talent to get Westbrook now because I'm with you. because those are the guys that will attract him to stay and make it worth staying for him to maximize his his gifts and so if they if they give that up now then what I mean maybe you get him on a renegotiation and extension so you can get him to lock in but it's going to be especially when you get Russell Westbrook then how are you going to get that much better because they have some draft picks owed as and if they got of course if they got Westbrook this year they're going to give their pick to the I Sixers. So, so you have that, and then that means they're giving their they're giving their twenty nineteen pick to the Magic and all this other stuff. But also, like you, you can't do that much because you've already made all these other commitments. And so, you I think you roll the dice now with with kind of what they've done, and then you you say, you know, we hope that we get him, and if we don't, then we're probably not going to get another Max Caliber guy that year. But we'll keep on trying as long as we can.
0: Oh, I'm with you. I mean, I. If, we're, if Russell Westbrook wants to sign with the Lakers in 2017, I don't think whether he spent this last season with the Lakers will be a huge factor. It, it might be this, a negative, like it was with Dwight. could be. The experience of being exposed to a team that's so miserable might trump the extra money they could offer. That's that said, if I were the Lakers and some type of small offer... Uh, with so, with one young player or something. I might do it, but that's irrelevant because there's no way that would be the best offer, the Thunder field.
1: Yeah, and the Thunder have an obligation to themselves to take the best possible offer, and while you think that would be to a team that would have the expectation of re-signing Westbrook, it doesn't have to be. It doesn't always go that way. Look at Jeff Green. I mean, for some, somehow the the the, <laughs> the Clippers gave up a first-round pick for him and then let him go a couple months later.
0: Well... <laughs> That's a different type of front office. Where I I don't know if there are comparisons. I mean, whoever trades for Russell Westbrook is going to believe they they can and will resign him. They might yep. be wrong, but they're going to believe they will.
1: That's true. So yeah. actually, that 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 leads me into the Clippers, who I I like their draft. I, I will give them credit for that. I'm not the biggest fan of Bryce Johnson, but people who who know who followed this class more than I do do and then Diamond Stone is intriguing. They got him late. But the Clippers had this fascinating possibility where they basically had, other than DeAndre, whose contract is already of value because of how the cap is spiked, that all their best players were going to be free agents in the same year. That's fraught with peril, but when you're a major market, it also has serious opportunity. And so they nuked some of their flexibility to give big money to Austin Rivers and Jamal Crawford.
0: I didn't have a problem with that because this is... This, look, you have Chris Paul, DeAndre Jordan, Blake Griffin, and, and J.J. Redick. This is a team good enough to win a championship with the right breaks. Now, they'll obviously need more breaks than the Warriors, more breaks than the Cavs. But this is a, a very good team, and I would not want to lose talent from this very good team when really it all, you, all it costs you is money to, to keep those guys. Crawford and, and Rivers had, Austin Rivers had all kinds of leverage. They used it right. <laughs> Uh, but the, for the Clippers, you're retaining your best talent, and I I really do think this is a team that, if every everything breaks right, can win a championship. That's not true for every team in the league.
1: Yeah, I guess so. If you're the third best team in the conference, I guess that is really a possibility. I mean, I, I've never seen the, the, the current iteration of the Clippers as being in that group, but really, if you can make the conference finals, then you have to be in that conversation because you never know what can happen at that point.
0: Yeah, I mean, you know, we went a year with Blake Griffin. It was a lost year for him. Uh, But, he, you know, very early in the season, he looked like an MVP candidate. So, you know, there could be some growth in his game. I think DeAndre Jordan came a long way defensively. If Chris, Chris Paul, it seems like, is overdue to take a step back due to aging. But if he can hold that up one more year, if everything comes together, you know, obviously the Warriors are the favorites for a reason. But this team could be very, very good.
1: Yeah, I, I could totally see them making, making their first trip to the Western Conference Finals this year, which would be a, a really notable step for them. And one of the dynamics with this team that I'm so interested in, I've been fascinated with Clippers for a few years now, is that I'm not sure that I want to give both Chris Paul and Blake Griffin. I'm not sure I want to give either of them a full max contract. And I think that's what they're setting themselves up for, is just basically bringing the band back for another couple of years.
0: What would you do instead of offering one of them a full max contract?
1: I would have traded Chris Paul at the deadline and wrote a piece <laughs> of like, a bunch of crap for it,
0: yeah, but even last year, this was a team that with the ver- with the right breaks could have won a championship. Uh, I see,
1: I didn't see it last year. I still don't. Like, i I think they have a chance. like I'm not going to say I'm not going to say it's zero, but it's like to me, it's maybe like one or two percent. Well, that's a lot. Yeah, it's it's a lot, but right now, knowing what we know, would you be comfortable giving Blake and CP five-year full maxes?
0: Comfortable, not completely, but I would much rather do that than lose them. I think it's so hard to attract top players. You know, if right now they, w- if it were possible to extend them for both both of them for those deals, I would absolutely do it. Okay, would you?
1: I don't think I would. I because for I'll- either. For either, though, I, I, I think that this year could give me enough information to feel comfortable about it. I would need to know that with Blake, it's a lot of injury risk and just like kind of seeing where post-athletic prime Blake Griffin goes as a player. Because I, I, I think that something that I've I've theorized with Blake, and granted, I have to admit, I was, I've been lower on him than everybody his entire career. So I admit that I'm not coming at this from the same place as everybody else, is that... What makes Blake Griffin so intriguing is that he brings unusual gifts, both athletic and non-athletic, to the table for his position. Mm-hmm. The problem with that is he's not so good at, let's say, like, initiating or doing things like that, where if you have him doing that, your team will be good at it. So, like, he's more of a, to me, he's more of a compliment. He's a great complimentary piece and not a primary piece. And as we move into the new, like, kind of the the, the peak of the cap spike, and him getting older, if that's the high watermark as, like, real good complimentary player, I would be scared about giving that guy five years. And with Chris, it's just because guys of his size and his age just don't age well, though I firmly believe that there is a significant chance that he is the next John Stockton in that way.
0: So I would agree with most of that, but I also think there's a chance that Griffin's skill set and not being the, this guy you look at it as the primary guy can be an asset. Because it's, you know, look at Westbrook and Durant. Both of them are primary guys. Neither one of them had the skill set to be that complementary player. And so that created friction. And so, yes, you still need to get that that top guy and, you know, it's a different thing involved. But that could be appealing. That could, you know, I I don't think it'll be Kevin Durant. But if somebody becomes available who's more of that primary type of skill set, I think it's a little Like 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 Russell Westbrook? Maybe. <laughs> Although I don't know if uh, he and Chris Paul could play together and, and then...
1: No, I, my uh, idea is that he replaces Chris Paul.
0: Right. And so would you, Well, you know, I mean, that, that would probably make the Clippers better for future years be, because of the age difference. But I don't know if that necessarily makes them better than they are right now or, ha- you know, have because they've basically been at the same level for that's a l- little bit. And we've seen that level isn't quite good enough.
1: Yeah, and it's also true that one of the most interesting offers for Chris Paul, conceptually, I'm not saying it was ever on the table, was Kyrie Irving, and I'm pretty mm-hmm. sure that's dead now for obvious reasons. <laughs> yes. So, okay, so we talked about the Clippers, talked about the Lakers. Are there any, oh, I have I have to mention my other one, and I'm guessing it'll be up there for you. One of my single least favorite contracts of the offseason was Ryan Anderson. And the the Rockets' offseason in general, I didn't like. Yeah, I agree. I yeah, <laughs> it's a lot of risk because he is back stuff, and his defense was already bad. And whenever somebody who has bad defense gets older, it just gets scary.
0: Yeah, and I you know I just didn't know if they had to offer him that much. I mean, how much of a market was there?
1: Yeah, because remember when we were doing the we were doing the mock offseason uh, because Ryan like we weren't we weren't bringing him up very often. And then and then when it got to it, it was just like everybody's like, eh, you know. And I th- I think that while you don't ever want to tether a player to a similar player's contract because that can lead to things like anchoring and a lot of other problems, he's not that much better than Mirza Toledovich and got more than double the money and an extra year.
0: Uh yeah. I agree. I mean he's, he's better. I think he's better. Yeah, he is better. But he's, yeah, I agree. But the Rockets you know, the Rockets Houston's an interesting market, and there is value, and I think this gets underrated. There's value in being good, and the you know, the perfect example is the Warriors, but that draws free agents in future years. So you say, yes, you're tying up money and spending away that's not good, but you'll still have some flexibility, and having a ton of flexibility is not helpful if you're no good and can't attract anybody anyway.
1: And speaking of not attracting anybody anyway, another offseason that was I was disappointed in, I don't think it was as bad as some of the ones we talked about in Chicago. And the reason that Chicago bothered me is that I was vaguely supportive of the Rose trade because I thought they added some nice complementary pieces and that Rose basically wasn't the long-term answer for them. That was my kind of thesis of that trade. But one of the important parts for me was, okay, but you have to react to this responsibly, still get your rim protecting center, and just kind of move from there. And instead, they basically just sat on their hands.
0: I'm going to defend the Bulls offseason. I thought Denzel Valentine was a, a, a good pick if you think he's healthy. And so maybe we have to, you know, what do I know what his physical said? I'll just, I guess I'll defer to the Bulls a little bit on that one. I think straight up, Robin Lopez is more valuable than Derrick Rose. So I agree that, I agree with you. So the trade was a win and Jerry and Grant's a nice bonus. I'm not that high on him, but there's some intriguing stuff there and if he turns out all the better. But I would just I'd rather have Robin Lopez than Derrick Lo, uh, Derrick Rose. Uh Rajon Rondo what seems like a one-year deal with very little guaranteed the second year. They're better at point guard with him than they would you know than they would be without him. I don't know if there was a better point guard on the market. There's min- assuming there's minimal cost in 2017, you know, then there's I just I don't see the problem with that. A lot of people are against the Rondo signing. I don't see the downside.
1: I'm loosely with you on it. I think that Rondo makes teams y and you know like that a lot of that takes like when he's on the floor they kind of take parts of his personality just cuz he's such a definitive player and that can be a good thing for guys like LeBron, it can be a bad thing for Lots of guys. Nick Young is probably a good example. Rondo's in the middle. You know, sometimes it's positive, sometimes it's a negative. But the Bulls didn't have enough around it to make that, like, a clear like a clear negative. You know, there are some teams that just have enough enough positives on the floor that you're like, oh, you don't want to bring Rondo into this mix. But the Bulls not only had weak point guards, in my opinion, for this year, and they didn't make a long-term commitment to him, but they need to know what they have in McDermott, what they have in Miritich, and I think that Rondo makes that easier to evaluate them.
0: Yes, that's, Nate, a, that's a great point, too.
1: Nate disagrees, but that's because he dislikes Rondo and he's closer to the Bulls.
0: Yes, I, and I I would also add, I think the Bulls are, are probably my early favorite, not in terms of prediction, but just in terms of, oh, this makes sense all around, destination for Russell Westbrook.
1: Yeah, I, I, we'll have to see... Like one of the fun questions for me is whether the Celtics can put together a worthwhile offer for Jimmy Butler, because like they could go in that direction as well. That doesn't necessarily preclude Westbrook, but yeah, I, I think Chicago is an underrated destination for him.
0: And if you're going to attract Westbrook or somebody like him, and, and that seems to be the goal by sitting out free agency this year, let other teams spend big and invest in multi-year contracts to get players, and you are going to be the team with a big market and all the room in 2017, it also would help to be coming off a playoff berth. And they've taken the small steps here and there, like Rondo and getting Lopez, that I think are are going to make them not locks for the playoffs, but more likely than not to make it.
1: And it's not like the bottom of the East is so stacked that you have to sit there and and say, oh God, we're never going to have a chance.
0: Right, I mean, when you have Jimmy Butler, you know, you, you can't tank, you're not going to be too bad. Yeah,
1: I, I think that the, they'll be competitive this year, I think that they'll have, if they can stay healthy. Because, I mean, if Jimmy Butler stays a little bit healthier last year, they make the playoffs. Yeah. And they have a whole bunch of other stuff going on. But, yeah, I, I think that'll it be interesting. Are there any other off-seasons that stood out to you
0: in a negative way? So, one that, you know, maybe this was just last summer's disaster coming home to roost and it was inevitable or maybe they made the best of a bad situation and i mean it wasn't a good off season, so i'll, I'll put them in the, in the losers but maybe it could have been worse is the kings i'm, I'm having a little trouble deciding whether this was the best bad offseason it could have been or whether it could have been you know whether the kings deserve credit for not this not being as bad as it could have been or whether it was just bad
1: yeah, they've done a couple things that I really liked. Giving basically one-year deals to Aaron Flau and Tolliver was inspired. It was a, the kind of smart move that you just don't see out of the Kings. But giving three years $24 million, to Garrett Temple and giving him a player option was weird. And then also, they've done this strange thing where they keep on stockpiling centers who might be good. Like, I'm not going to say they're they're making mistakes in terms of talent evaluation. I don't know Papianas as much as some other people. I love I've loved Scal for a long time, but you're not only are you degrading them as assets, but we're living in a world where centers aren't what they were. It's not like stockpiling centers like, "Oh my god, we're going to get first round, like we're going to get awesome first round picks for all these guys because everybody needs all these seven footers."
0: Yeah, yeah, I'm with you. On an individual basis, I don't dislike any of them. Maybe they're just maybe they're doing it right. Like we talked about maybe the Magic should do more with just asset acquisition. If you see with this draft pick, or that this is a good player, and we're not ready to win, just take the best player. I, I'm a pretty big believer in best player available. Uh, as long as we're on the Kings, my favorite offseason move was by a player, and that's Karan Butler. Uh, it he seemed like he wanted won- know. He, you know, the Kings reportedly promised him a trade last year, never ended up happening. He wasn't playing much, which I think is fair. I think he's really past that point. But it seems he wanted out. So his contract option is coming up. What does he do? He opts in. Basically dares the t- the Kings to cut him and pay him to go away rather than just going away by himself. And they did it. They waved him. He has his freedom now. And he's going to have a little extra money.
1: I love that you brought that up because that is absolutely the type of thing that you would think of that I wouldn't focus on. But you're completely right. I mean, he, he did that and made, it, made himself a meaningful amount of money, too. I mean, that's an important you know that's an important thing when you're at the end of your career. And now, not only does he have that money in his back pocket, but, you know, may, maybe he gets an interesting offer to go somewhere else.
0: Maybe. For the minimum. <laughs> w- Warriors, he, I mean, you know, he's a good locker room presence. I, I don't know if he can offer enough on the court. I necessarily want him on my team, but he's not going to cause problems, I don't think.
1: Yeah, you can just. I, I'm trying to think of a team like that's because I mean Utah could have maybe used somebody like him before they brought in Joe Johnson, just a, a guy who can be a stabilizing influence and a vet and all that. But we'll see. We'll see what happens with him. But you're right, though, that opting in and daring them to dump you was a brilliant move, especially because the Kings are always <laughs> so aggressive about max, like squeezing everything out of everything, filling up all the roster spots and doing all that kind of stuff. That it kind of felt like they were going to try to do that this year. Yeah. Actually, it's weird that I say that considering how horribly they did the bottom of their bench last year. But I think that was just misevaluation, not aggressiveness. Agreed. Yeah, because all those guys are gone now. But were they cut? Curry was the one clear win, and they let him go, which was a huge mistake. James mm-hmm. Anderson declined it and went, went, went left the NBA entirely, and then Dukan.
0: See, James a- James Anderson. He maybe could have won the same bet Butler did. He could have dared the Kings to waive him, then gone to Europe and made some extra money. That would have been awesome to so
1: do two guys do it in the same year.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Good uh, for Butler, though. Good
1: for him. You're right. So I guess the team to end on, because you, you're so well connected with them, is Detroit. How do you feel about that as somebody who, who that's more your team?
0: Before we get to them, can I throw in one more loser that I of think... Of course. We, they're so far from complete. There's so much out there that maybe they can redeem it a little bit. But if you're going to give Evan Turner a first Oh, God, you know, thank you contract, for mentioning
1: the Blazers. Oh, my God, I'd forgotten.
0: I mean, what an awful, awful deal for somebody who I don't think is good enough on the best-fitting team to deserve that contract, and then he's a bad fit there. He's He's a terrible fit
1: for them. And Portland is amazing to me, first of all, because Olshay had maybe the best off season of anybody other than RC Buford last year. Mm-hmm. And my interpretation of it, and and I could be wrong on this, is that they just fundamentally misevaluated what their team needed to succeed. You know, like to me, if they got a, you know, just had a, a quiet summer, got a rim protecting center, you know, whatever of their restricted guys, got fair offers you match on those, and then maybe you trade those guys, maybe you keep them. That would have been an awesome offseason for them. You know, if they get whatever it was, if they am high and miss on Whiteside, beyond like basically any of those guys, like there's a collection of about six players that at the contracts they signed would have been a positive for Portland. It seemed like they were a free agent destination intuitively. And instead, they bet on Evan Turner when shot creation is like the lowest thing that they need and he had clearly the high-water mark of recent time last year. They, and they paid him better than that. They paid him like that was like the worst of his recent years, and it was the best.
0: <laughs> yes. And I don't know if this is what led them astray, but I really thought the Trailblazers were going into a very complicated offseason, more than more pe- most people acknowledge, in that they had these restricted free agents with low cap holds and a ton of cap space. Where no team in the league had potential to build a higher payroll quicker. And I don't know if they were, you know, wanted to do that. They've had huge payrolls in previous years, you know, a a long time ago. And so maybe Paul Allen is fine with that. Maybe he's not. But it's always complicated when you could go to having this humongous luxury tax payment on top of this huge payroll. So I, I just wonder how much that fear of being into that situation influenced what they did and you know maybe they maybe they weren't afraid of that maybe they just really liked evan turner and i'm not saying because of that fear that justifies giving evan turner that contract but maybe that explains how they got themselves into a a tricky mindset
1: it's it's a reasonable way of of interpreting it i mean it's also possible that there's a interpretation of what happened that maybe beating the clippers was a was a bad thing for them because it didn't make them analyze their flaws as as quickly enough and they did they had a solid showing against the warriors i mean i don't think that was disheartening at all for them though i think they could have won at least two games like when curry was out just because the warriors were kind of weaker but those games were not oracle for the most part so maybe they went oh you know mason plumley we want to we want a playoff series with him but like they were on their way to losing that series before the clippers got hurt
0: yeah and i guess the other thing maybe to give them a little credit cuz we're only judging them based on what they did i really depending on what the contracts would have been I really like the idea that seemed to be their plan A of Chandler Parsons and Dwight Howard. I think that would have fit a, a lot of what they could use, but they struck out. So maybe their assessment of what their team needs was was okay, and it just happened to be like, we disagree with them on Evan Turner, and that's it.
1: Yeah, I mean, but they, they still could have gotten, I think they still had the space for Jan Mahimi if they had wanted him, and I think he would have been a nice addition. Agreed. And also, yep. I mean like I so I was of the feeling that if you can do that kind of a move and let's say you get Mahimi, Bianco, whoever, at a reasonable contract, maybe there's a trademarker for Mason Plumley, and so before he gets really expensive, which is a year away, could they could even extend him this summer, then you can get a small asset for him and if Plumley might cost more than Mahimi next summer, I think he will.
0: Yeah, although Plumley's uh, playmaking when teams trap Damian Lillard and, and McCollum, there is value in that I you know. Sure. And if you're trying to win now, and which I think they are, and they prove they can, I'm not rushing to give him away. There's value in keeping him a, a year, even if it gets difficult a year from now. That's true. Uh, but and maybe we'll like their offseason more by the end. I mean, Myers, Leonard's still out there. Mo Harkless is still out there. Alan Crab's still out there as players they have bird rights for and who are restricted. So this could still go a, a few ways, it, but Evan Turner's just a huge anchor on their offseason right now.
1: Yeah, and, and now that Dallas can't do those YOLO terrible <laughs> o- offer sheets to them, which I felt like was going to be their destiny if Durant, didn't, if Durant didn't go to the Warriors, now that that has to be more of teams like the Sixers and the Nets, who have already spent a fair amount of money this summer. I mean, I think Alan Crabb's going to get an offer. I think Harkless is going to get an offer. But, you know, maybe the market gets a little more tepid for myers Leonard, and you can keep him around.
0: Yeah. I like Myers Leonard. I would not be selling low on him.
1: I would not be either. And if they re- if they withdraw his qualifying offer, I'm going to be pissed.
0: This do, the, do the Pelicans have? How much money do the Pelicans have left? Not much. See, I loved Myers Leonard for New Orleans because I think Anthony Davis needs a somebody who's big enough to bang with opposing centers but also can stretch the floor for him. I thought he would have been a perfect fit.
1: Yeah, and because you can't... Uh, if anthony davis has the the stretch in his game like we think he will you can't put a five on him because like the big issue with myers leonard is that if you can if a team can put their power forward on him he loses a lot of his value just because you're not pulling that guy away from the paint but mm-hmm. when when ad's on the floor the other team's going to put their best defensive player on him yep i agree with you. i hadn't really thought about that too much but that's a great pitch i should have bid on him with them in the off in the mock-off season
0: i asked for the for the Pelicans so i could do that
1: and you weren't given them
0: I wasn't giving them.
1: Wow, that that falls on somebody that isn't me. <laughs> but but okay, so so now we can get to the Pistons. Okay. Oh no, it was fine. Yeah, I mean, it, it certainly wasn't terrible, but I also don't think it was. I don't think it was great. I I think what bothered me the most was that I think they have a clear need for just more shot making and shot creation for other people, and I think for whatever reason they just felt, nah, we're fine at that.
0: Well, yes, they can use that a little bit off the bench, maybe some type, some wing. And, and I, you know, that might be their last priority. That might be, they might still be looking to see if they can get somebody to do that. But I, they very much, I think the biggest thing was they needed a better backup point guard than Steve Blake. Ish Smith is that. To some degree, you have to trust that he was the best player that they could have gotten. I'm not a huge Ish Smith fan, but he's a big upgrade. Uh, from Steve Blake, and uh, if he was truly the best player Detroit could draw, that's fine. You know, I thought the money was fine for that.
1: Yeah, it, was, it wasn't horrible in any way. It's, it's all three years are guaranteed, right?
0: Uh, as far as I know.
1: And John Lure was a, a strange one for me because I like John Lure a lot, but I feel like they gave him more than I would have been comfortable with, and it's always weird for me to criticize a move of a guy that I like more than most people.
0: So this, this is where the Pistons' mindset is different from yours. The Pistons' mindset is, we like John Lure, we can get John Lure, let's get John Lure. Where you're like, well, you know, maybe it's not the money where I'm comfortable. They want to get the good player. And there's something to that, I think. Sometimes I think teams are a little too shy about just going after the guy you want and getting him. Rather, You know, there is value and flexibility, I'm with you. But at a certain point, you need to have the right players.
1: I I see the merit in that for sure, but I also think they, they outbid the market on him just like they did on Reggie Jackson. And while bo- having both of them is better than not having them, this is a parallel to what what's happening with them with Josh Smith. It's like the more money you spend on things that are just kind of like that extra money, the surplus money, that eventually comes home to roost. Less now than ever, though. That's true.
0: Exactly. exactly. Less now than ever. And in the meantime... Your team is more competitive. You can't always save flexibility for this tremendous, great move that might never come. And let's give the piss a little credit. You want to talk about the right spot, right time move of the last year? It was trading for Tobias Harris. All these teams with all this flexibility, none of them got Tobias Harris for basically nothing.
1: Yeah, that's I, it. Is astonishing to me that all of that happened the way And while Marcus Morris has a lot more baggage, and of course there were reasons that all that happened, they got him for nothing too.
0: Yeah, you know. So they they remain flexible enough where those types of moves are available to them. Not all the moves of like that. You know, there are some contracts that teams want to dump or you know things like that where you know, only the seventy ers or the trailblazers could could have facilitated it. But the Pistons remain flexible enough where they can be involved in those.
1: Yeah, I think that's definitely fair. Uh, any any other moves, individual moves or something like that that you thought we should discuss?
0: If you were the Cavs, would you match Della Vadova?
1: Probably. I, I understand that it's... It, 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 But the problem for me is that it's just Dan Gilbert's money. You know, <laughs> the, this is a situation where... We could spend Dan Gilbert's money. Yeah, is that they they don't have... Like, so this doesn't affect their flexibility in any way. The Cavs, unless something ridiculous happens, like LeBron takes substantially less money and then has a low capital for next year, they're not going to have cap flexibility until 2019. Like, that's just the way that they've done this team. And that is not a criticism. I mean, not only are the NBA champions, but they have an awesome group. So you can do that. So basically what that means is Delevedova is just extra money on their luxury tax bill. And while he did get marginalized in the playoffs, he was an incredibly important part of their regular season success because Kyrie Irving was out for so long. And Mm. he can just man-miss, he's not perfect, and now they're going in all likelihood to Mo Williams and Kay Felder who are both substantial downgrades, one in the near term, well, actually both in the near term, but one is more of an eventual player than a present player. And while I don't think there's anybody that's really going to compete with Cleveland in the East, like really like battle them for the number one record unless Boston is gangbusters, it does affect things like home court in the finals and other and other elements of this, because I'm sure LeBron is going to take it easy for the at least the first half of the year.
0: I'm with you. I mean, it's, it's only money, and I don't know if we're positioned to be spending Dan Gilbert's money as much as we want to, but I think it makes a lot of basketball sense to match. I was really surprised LeBron tweeted on the same day the report came out that the was going to sign, like, hey, good luck in Milwaukee. It's been real. And, you know, maybe, maybe LeBron could have taken the other path and pressured Dan Gilbert into spending more money.
1: And it's not. And it's not like they can spend that on anything else. Like they didn't get a trade well, exception. They didn't get anything. I mean,
0: so well, there is there is one name out there.
1: Yeah, but that spending less on Delvadova doesn't truly open the door for Dwayne Wade.
0: Oh, sure it does. It you know if you renounce J.R. Smith and or renounce everybody and and LeBron takes a major pay cut to get Wade into the picture, and then they'll have LeBron's bird rights next year so they can give Wade a, a big raise or if it's not a multi-year deal, and then max LeBron next year. I'm not saying LeBron would do that, but it does open that door.
1: But at the same point, all of the, the Delvadova decision didn't have to come until the 10th, and by that point they could have resolved all that. It's not like yeah. Delvadova's hold was so big that it made all that not possible.
0: Well, it's also possible for them to change their mind on matching, too.
1: Yeah, that's that's true. It isn't binding. Oh, that would be a magnificent troll move. To just be like, oh, we're not going to match, but they haven't signed the offer sheet yet, and be like, ding, like because you know, they because they didn't withdraw it. I don't I don't believe that they've withdrawn the qualifying offer to him.
0: Not that I've seen. I mean, you know, the the other thing I'd add too, and maybe there's an element of this. Maybe Delavadova just wants to move on. You know, he he's obviously never going to start ahead of Kyrie Irving as long as Kyrie's healthy. I think he should start in Milwaukee. I think he's a great fit with Giannis. Giannis can run the point, and Delavadova can can be a spot-up shooter, but also somebody who can help him, you know, when Yaz gets in trouble, and very importantly, guard opposing point guards. I think it's just an excellent fit. And maybe maybe there's just a degree of, hey, you helped us, you've been a good player for us, if you want to move on, we will not stand in the way.
1: Yeah, that could be the, the spiritual kind of analog of the Warriors withdrawing the qualifying offer on Festus Azili really early. And the idea of basically being like, we could have probably squeezed this a little bit more, but we want to let you get more into the open market. Yeah. Would you like him in Portland? Sure. Yeah, because they, I think they still have the space to get him, theoretically, depending on how much he gets.
0: Yeah, I think he could be a, a good fit. I guess if you add him, the Trailblazers would sort of become the type of team we were talking about with the Jazz, or at least moving that direction, where you can be good or at least above average on both ends of the floor, but maybe not necessarily at once.
1: That's definitely true, because Azealy, you want to talk about how how Plumlee can create when they trap. Festus Azili <laughs> cannot. Like, he
0: really, 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 really can't. Exa- yeah. But and sometimes when you want to play good defense, I, I don't know if Portland has that gear right now, and, and he would add that.
1: Okay, so last question. Excluding max players who change teams. and But you can include rookies if you want, though I'd probably prefer you pick somebody in addition to that. What player are you most excited to see in their new uniform of the guys that have changed teams so far?
0: Excluding Max players. Yes. It might be Jeremy Lin. That's a guy who comes to mind earlier than others. I I think he's a real fun player, and the Nets are set up to put the ball in his hands and let him create, and that's when he's at his best.
1: My number one is Serge Ibaka because I want to know if he really has been as underutilized in Oklahoma City as it seemed. Because there's so little shot creation and, like, just shot making on that Magic team that he will get more opportunities to do stuff than he did in Oklahoma City. And so if he, you know, if he still has some of that fastball, we will know it very quickly. And the other guy, just partially because I've been obsessed with them for a couple years now, George Hill with the Jazz. Because I think there's a possibility that he's exactly what they were looking for. And if he is and they figure it out quickly, then... They, I, I don't think they become, like, the second-best team in the West or anything, but I think they could become the second-toughest out in the West.
0: Yeah, I would agree with, with both of those. Uh, I guess one more I'd add is Timothy Mozgov, just to see whether his problems last year, how much it was injury-related and how much it was just, hey, he's at an age where big men sometimes break down. Uh, and then add on that, you know, the Lakers' young core, the missing piece is a center, and he's not that young. Uh, but just to see how he'll fit with that young core, there's if every if those young players make a jump quicker than expected, way quicker than expected, which sometimes happens, uh, there's going to be a lot on Mozgov to hold up and be a productive player and not be the piece that lets them down.
1: Yeah, that that's a definitely good piece, and I, we're, I think we're going to see more of Wall Dang at the three, We saw him at the four last year. I'm intrigued to see how he works. I've always liked him as a, a smaller part of a bit of a better machine. That's just I think that's a good use for him. But to see if he can go kind of pull back and do do a good job with the Lakers at 31 is exciting as well. Well, thank you so much for taking the time. Always a pleasure to talk to you.
0: Thanks for having me.
1: Thanks again to Dan Feldman for taking the time to come on. He you can read him at nbc's pro basketball talk he is one of my absolute favorite writers and you should also definitely follow him on twitter at dan feldman nba that's d-a-n-f-e-l-d-m-a-n-n-b-a he was also a part of the massive awesome mock-off season that we did for the dunked on basketball podcast where dan kevin pelton and i were the teams and nate duncan was the player agent Some of it was prophetic, some of it was distinctly not, but I think it's a worthwhile exercise to listen to, even if you haven't already. And I'm also absolutely thrilled to announce that Real Jam Radio is now part of the CLNS Radio family. I've been familiar with CLNS for a long time because I'm friends with Jared Weiss, who has been on this show more than a few times, and he works for CLNS Radio. They do a great job, and also that means that our podcast is on their awesome app, so you can listen to it that way on the CLNS Radio app, which is definitely available on the iTunes Store because that's the type of phone I have, but I believe it's available on other apps as well, so you should definitely check that out. As always, any feedback that you have, I I read it. The best way to do that is to reach out to me on twitter at Danny laRue d-a-n-n-y-l-e-r-o-u-x you can also email me at Danny laRue nba at gmail.com i read everything i respond to as much as i can and of course you can help out the podcast by giving us a review on itunes by giving us a rating on itunes or by just downloading episodes hopefully you download them and then you you do listen to them i always want you to but Downloads are very important, and so it's good to have that anyway, and you can do that to support your favorite podcast. And the other exciting, thrilling new way that you can support this podcast is through Blue Apron, a product that I am a huge fan of. And so if you go to blueapron.com realgm, R-E-A-L-G-M, just like this podcast and the site, you can get three meals for free, and that includes free shipping, and you can try out what I think is a truly fantastic product. And so again, that's blueapron.com realgm. Thanks again for listening. Take care and make it a great day.